glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Stand with me if you would in reverence for God's word. We'll read verses 1 through 8 of Exodus 27. Verse 1, And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his fire pans. All the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. And thou shalt make for it a grade of network of brass, and upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof, and thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar, beneath that the net may be even to the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altars, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow with boards shalt thou make it as it was showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. Thank you. You may be seated. This is not the only reference to this altar in the Bible. It is the, the place where God is giving to Moses the specifications for this altar. And so that's where our focus will be. You can read that Solomon would later build an altar much larger than this that could handle much more sacrifice. But this is the pattern that God gave Moses in the mount for the tabernacle. This altar was to be, as we'll see here in a little bit, it had to be mobile, had to be transported about. That's part of the reason for its size and, and so forth. But as with the other components in the tabernacle, if you just had one piece of furniture or if you just had one aspect of the tabernacle, you say, oh, that kind of makes me think of the gospel. We cannot just pick any part of the Bible and say, I want that to be typological. But Hebrews tells us that the tabernacle on earth is a type or a, or a pattern of the true in heaven, meaning what God did on earth, he laid out as as we would, um, if, you ever, if you ever see... Uh, um, a model home built in order to portray what the larger structure is going to look like. Have you ever walked through Cabela's? If you don't ever walk through Cabela's, you need to get right with the Lord and go down there every now and then and walk through Cabela's. I mean, you cannot live in the Northwest and not visit a Cabela's every now and then. Some people I know, Fred, don't go to Cabela's. They go to places like, well, never mind. Um, anyway, inside joke, inside joke. But yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. If you do, you'll come to the tent section. There'll be these cute little doll-sized tents. Have I seen those at Cabela's? Now, those aren't just so you can look and say, oh, that's cute. It is a model of the real thing. The tabernacle on earth was not the true approach to God. It's a model of God's design in heaven for how man approaches a holy God. It is a picture of Jesus Christ through a, a building project on earth to portray salvation through Jesus Christ, a temporary structure to portray an eternal purpose and plan of God. God is very wise. He always, in the Old Testament, and then when Jesus came and was tabernacled on earth in his human body, he taught through parable, and he still does today. We have an ability to quickly grasp physical things. We really do. It's why this morning we saw the church likened to a, a building, because God knows that will help us understand. He uses physical truth or physical things you and I can see to communicate spiritual truth, that which we cannot see. So in the tabernacle, that's what we have see going, we see going on. 
it's not stepping out of the bounds of Scripture to say the fine twine linen is a picture of righteousness because that's what Revelation says. The fine linen on the saints is the righteousness of the saints made white through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? So we want to stay right inside the, the, the confines of the Bible and its, its, in, its self-interpretation, and so we do. And so this morning, I'll be honest with you, I haven't been anticipating all week this message this morning because it's such a tremendous and clear picture of God's way of salvation. One of the other reasons I anticipate this is I think it so aptly addresses a, a lie of our adversary that's in the culture in the name of religious truth, but it's a lie. And that is you can enter into the beauty of holiness and the glory of God while diminishing or denying your own sinfulness. There's a gospel today that is preached that requires no repentance and therefore really no faith. Meaning that you meet people and they say, do you have a relationship with God? They, oh, I talk to him every day. Well, that's good. Does he hear you? <laughs> well, I think he does. Well, why? But because I'm a pretty good person. I try to do what's best. I try to do what's right. I try to be good to my neighbor. I don't know why God wouldn't listen to me. When I hear that, I hear someone I know is deceived. If your perception of yourself outside of Jesus Christ is, I'm a pretty good person, you've never looked at yourself the way God looks at you. Pastor, we're going to preach on sin this morning. You bet, for lack of a better term. Absolutely. You cannot know the depth of God's grace until you know the ugliness of your sin. Grace is nothing until you realize how merciful it is that God would have anything to do with you or me. Amen? Absolutely so. And when you come to the brazen altar, as I said in the introduction, if you come through that one gate, God only provided one door into the tabernacle, a picture of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the door. But when you come in, wouldn't it be nice to go immediately to the laver and start washing? But do you realize God didn't put the laver first? He put it second. We'll deal, God willing, with the laver next Sunday. Uh, that's not what he put first. There are many that try to take the Bible and just clean up their lives. You can't if you've not dealt with what the brazen altar has to say. The water of God's word won't wash you outwardly if you've not been washed by the blood inwardly. God always, please hear me this morning, there's a lot of debate in our culture among professing Christians about how Christians should live their lives. Okay, you're a believer, how should you live? Let's just get one thing clear. There's one today, there's a group today that says, you know what, God only cares about the inside. And if your heart is right toward him, he really doesn't care about the outside. That's not true. There's another false religion that says you clean up the outside and look good to men and then you'll impress God the same way. Not true. Jesus said cleanse, what's the next word? First. Cleanse first that which is within. Then why? That that which is within and that which is without may be clean. As we come through that one gate, you come to the brazen altar because that is dealing first with what is wrong on the inside of men. You know why we produce filth with our hands? Because we have filth in our hearts. I've heard some people, they say, oh, pardon my language. I let one slip. And I say, God says, not I. That's right. It slipped right out of your heart onto your tongue. If I've got a filthy tongue, it's because I have a filthy heart. Amen. That's what Jesus says. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Do you know why 
filthy language and filthy words and dirty jokes, whoops, they slip off of the tongues of men. Because it's right here. Do you know why we do obscene things and cruel things and violent things with our fingers and our hands? Because we're defending that in our heart. And one day, it, whoops, I wasn't intending to do that. I never intended to do that, but I did. Because it's a heart problem. See, what's this have to do with the tabernacle? Everything. The laver is about outward cleaning. The water of God's word will clean up your life. It will. But you know what? When God says to me, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. Do you know who cares about that verse? Ephesians 4.29. Do you know who cares and says, man, then I want to know what corrupt means. The person who's already had their heart cleansed by the blood of Christ. If you've not repented toward God and said God's right and anywhere I'm disobeying him, I'm wrong. You don't give a rip if he doesn't want corrupt communication coming out of your mouth. It only matters, your tongue only matters to God if your heart matters to God. Meaning you must be born again. (laughs) Nicodemus wanted to have a relationship with God, did he not? He said, good teacher, thou art, you're surely from God. And Jesus said, you must be born again. You know what he's saying? Let's go to the brazen altar. You know what Jesus did? He took him to the serpent on the pole where we'll be here in a few weeks. And you know what he made Nicodemus do? He made Nicodemus face his sin before he could ever have a relationship with God. I am grateful for the love of God, the mercy of God, but you and I cannot recognize his mercy until we recognize our wretchedness. And the first piece of art, the first article of furniture you come to in the tabernacle is not beautiful. The brazen altar was ominous. The brazen altar was, was overbearing. The brazen altar made a bold statement. I mean, you think about it. It's not made of gold. It's made of brass. You walk through that gate and the first thing, think, put, put your, your physical senses there. May God, may God help us this morning to, to put our mind's eye walking through. You see this white uh, fence boxing off where you're told God can be met. And you have visions of what's it going to be like to meet the very presence of God. And the first thing you do in walking through this one door and one gate is go, what is that smell? Is that blood? Is that a, is that, Meat being smoked and burned? What, what is that? And you look and there's blood dripping down the side of the altar. And you look and there's a dead carcass laying there. And you see the priest in his white garments and his hands are covered and dripping with blood. You say, pastor, pastor. Hey, that's what you're going to see if you walk through that door. It's not a beautiful sight. It's not golden cherubims and it's not a mercy seat covered with pure gold. No, no, it's not a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen. It's blood and death and consumption. Fires constantly burning and consuming. Say, really? If you're going to approach God, the first thing you must meet is what has separated us from God. And the first thing that stands out to you when you walk through that door is that brazen altar. And we're going to just give you a few things about it and by God's grace continue to make application here this morning. May I say this? If you've never come to the point of seeing that the cross of Jesus Christ was necessary for you to even talk with God, may God help you see it today. If I asked you this morning, before we just, by way of introduction, just a little further, if you bear with me. If I asked you this morning, what could you do today to help someone understand and see sin the way God sees sin? Maybe we could go down to Skid Row. If you've ever been among the homeless, 
you see the consequences of sin. I've had the unfortunate opportunity of having to bury homeless men who died in their sleep. Not a pretty thing. Men who, a man I'm thinking of right now knew the gospel, knew how to be saved, was bitter, deeply bitter in his soul, bitter at his upbringing, bitter at his dad, grew up that way and died in his sleep in Spokane, Washington, homeless. You say, man, what a horrid picture of sin. I witnessed that man more than once. To my knowledge, he never let God forgive him. Uh, maybe you should go into the the uh, detention facilities, maybe the juvenile detention, or maybe just down here to the Boundary County Jail, and hear men, their number one prayer request is, pray for my family because I'm here, and that's making life rough on them. Number one prayer request among the inmates, pray for my wife, my children, my girlfriend, whoever, because I'm here, their life is difficult. Well, that's a picture of sin, for sure. Maybe the guy who's got track marks up his arms, and I've had multiples of these kinds of men that deal with multiple cuts on their wrists and all over their arms trying to kill themselves while they're on a substance. Well, that's a horrible picture of sin. Do you know what the clearest picture of sin is? Visit the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there you not only have the down and outers, you have the up and the successful all doing the same thing putting nails in his hands and thorns in his head, beating him with a cat of nine tails. All in one place, you have a corrupt government. You have a corrupt religious system. You have corrupt everybody. The corruption that's in the culture is all poured on him. And then to top it all off, God himself turns against him, turns his face away from him. You want a true picture of sin, you must compare what we see at the cross of of Jesus Christ. All these other things portray the horrors of sin. But you know, if we take you to Skid Row or we take you to the, to the Boundary County Jail or to a prison system, perhaps in, in the state, you can see sin that probably most of us are not participating in. At the cross, you see what pride does. At the cross, you see that the pride of man is as destructive and vile and offensive to God that the, the, the well-loved individual like Caiaphas or Annas, his sin in the sight of God, he is the society man, he's got his life in order, he pays his bills, he's admired. You must know that his sin is as offensive to God as Barabbas' sin. It's at, at the cross we see that the brazen altar is nothing more than an Old Testament picture of the cross. And this morning, I'll be honest with you, if God has not yet brought about what's called contrition in your heart, ask Him for it. Your brokenness will be your blessing. He exalts those who humble themselves. He lifts up those that are cast down. Nothing will minimize who you are more than seeing yourself in the light of the cross of Christ or in the light of this brazen altar. We sell that say, this is what this is what God forced man to see when he walked into the tabernacle. You're going to approach to God. God is holy, unlike us. God never operates on a whim. God never operates on a selfish desire. God is principled. He is just and right and true. And he's always that way forever. And therefore we're not. And it is our sins, as Isaiah 59 that have separated us from our God. It's not that He cannot save, but our sins have separated us. And so, if we're to be reconciled to God, then we must first face the reality of what has separated us. And that's what the brazen altar does. And so, let's consider, first of all, this morning, the pattern of this altar. 
want to give you uh, five things about the pattern that I, again, I hope will just be helpful to help lock this into our hearts and our minds. Consider the materials that the altar is made of. Now, it's made with shittim wood, which is from a tree. Okay, It is insinuated that this tree had thorns on it. When you look it up in Strong's Concordance, it was called the shita tree or the shittim tree, shittim wood, having to do with the thorns that it produced. Is your mind going where it ought to be going? This this tree, number one, they hanged our Lord, the Bible says, on a tree made from wood, comes from a tree. Speaking, of course, of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ and the suffering he would go through for us when he was lifted up. Uh, but this material that's made, shittim wood, from this tree, and again, insinuated with thorns on it. Of course, they put a crown of thorns on his head. All of that speaking of the curse and the what the curse of sin brings about. Uh, but it's not only made of this shittim wood from a tree, which insinuates the cross and the suffering of it, but the, it's covered with brass. Now, you'll find so much of what's in the tabernacle is covered with gold, speaking of royalty, speaking of, of eternal value. But brass is always, through the Bible, associated with judgment. We mentioned this last week. The serpent on the pole was made of brass, representing the judgment of God on sin. So, again, it's not stepping out of bounds to see throughout Scripture you'll find brass always being almost every occasion associated with judgment on mankind, on man's sin uh, by God. And so brass deals with judgment. Uh, Here it's covered with brass. So that's the materials it's made with, wood, shittim wood, and brass. Number two, the measurement of it. You notice how big this thing is? How many of you think you got a pretty big picture of how, how large this altar is. And if you've studied this, you do. But if, if you're asking me in my mind, I'd say, oh, it's probably like a large grill. A seven and a half feet wide by seven and a half feet wide. This thing's basically eight by eight, okay, and it's four and a half feet high. That's a pretty big thing. You're not going to come through the gate and just, oh, I missed that. <laughs> this is this is obvious. It's right here, and it's it's big enough to put... Uh, it's big enough to put a bullock on. It's big enough to put a sheep on. It's big enough to put a goat on. The measurement of it, uh, I want us to understand that, that there was, first of all, in the measurement, the Bible says it is four square. Some of you mathematicians help me. What is the, uh, what is the, uh, the formula for the perimeter of a square? I heard it fast. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> we, know, we know this. Four times one side, you say however you want to. You know what I love about squares? Oh, I'm the kind of mathematician. I love a square. You know, it's length times width, side plus side plus side plus side, or side times four. You know why? Because it's, it's equilateral. It's, it's, everything's equal. All sides equal. Tell me what that speaks of. This world hasn't got a clue what equality is. If they did, they'd be on their face before God begging for mercy. Everybody says, I want what I deserve. No, you don't. <laughs> I want my rights. No, you don't. It is of the Lord's mercies, Lamentations 3 says, that we are not consumed. According to Revelation 21, verse 8, what do liars deserve? The lake of fire, because no liars enter into his holy city. According to Revelation 21, verse 8, liars and whoremongers and adulterers and adulterers, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind and covetous. I mean, he gives us, God covers all the bases. And according to God, we deserve, we deserve his wrath and judgment. And, and some would say, I just don't think I'm that bad. That's the problem. 
This, the measurements of this altar, it is, it is, uh, uh, seven and a half feet wide, and so it's, it's, it's five cubits by five cubits by three cubits, and so it's, it is, it is square in its measurement, speaking of God's equity. Turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy 32. I referenced part of this earlier. I think every student of the Bible should be at least very familiar with this verse because it's such a plain statement about the character of God. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The Bible says, He is the rock. It's capitalized because it's, it's a title for God. It, he is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Now, I, I want to be careful because I don't want to go too far into personal illustration, but some of you have spent a, a fair amount of time working with human beings. The statement I make, my family could tell you, is and I went on my tombstone. People are funny. I really don't want on my tombstone. I want something about the Lord there. But the people are funny. And sometimes I mean that sincerely. Boy, people are funny. But sometimes I mean it tongue-in-cheek like, yeah, people are funny. And then to remind myself, I say, I'm just glad I'm not a people. Yeah, but I am. You ever you ever watched other people? Um, so when it's when it's the job, when your job is to help people face the truth. You ever watched how people respond to the truth? You, maybe you're witnessing to them, trying to get them to see the truth. You're condemned. You need a savior. I don't think I'm that bad of a person. You ever told a lie? Well, I've tried not to. What does that mean? It means I have. It's code for yes, but I don't want to admit it, right? Meaning we're not four square in our thinking. We're not equal. What we'll do if you lie, sometimes I'll tell you that you lied even when it's not a lie. If I lie, well, it was one of those lies that God is okay with because I was really trying to do good. You with me? We, we pull out a different measuring tape for sin when it's us. Not God. The Bible says God is no respecter of persons. You're witnessing to somebody, and I've had this happen, trying to convince them they need to be saved. So what you want to do is find a sin that you are aware of, they're guilty of, and try to convince them. If this sin is obvious to me, what is God seeing? So you know, God says uh, marriage is honorable and all in the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And they say, well... I understand what you're saying, but what I'm doing, that's not what it is. It's not the same. We're living together, and it's though we're married and we're not, but that's not fornication because we've only been with each other for the last five years and nobody else. You with me this morning? You see how we take out a different measuring tape for ourselves? Well, I understand that if, if I were boasting and what I was boasting about wasn't true, that would be pride, but what I'm boasting about is true. I am smarter than most people I know. You with me this morning? God is equal. He doesn't change definitions for people. He doesn't say, oh, well, you're the president, and I know you're under a tremendous amount of pressure, and so it's okay for you to lie on a regular basis because of your job position. No, we're all at the same level. That's why the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
The four square dimensions of this altar tell us of the equity of God. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Perfect. Converting. You know what the law of the Lord is intended to do? Turn you. Turn you from hell to a God that wants to take you to heaven if you let him. Turn you from your sin to righteousness. Turn you from Satan to God. Turn you from darkness to light. Turn you from a light of deceit to a light of openness and honesty. That's what the law of God is intended to do, to bring you to Jesus Christ so that he can redeem you. But you know what? We'll never get there. When you walk through that gate of the tabernacle, the first thing you meet is something that is four square perfectly. I believe if you took your measuring tape out, you'd say precisely five cubits by precisely five cubits by precisely five cubits. God reminding us he is a God that is square, just, and true. That four square dimension tells us of God's equity in his judgment. But then we don't see the equity in the measurement. We see the elevation. This thing's four and a half feet off the ground. High enough you could hoist a beef up there, but not so low that it's not elevated. You know what an altar does? It lifts up the sacrifice. And I, if I be lifted up. You know what the cross of Christ did with Jesus? It lifted him up as a spectacle for the naysayers and the deniers to come by and say, ha, if thou be the Son of God, come on down. He lifted him up as a sacrifice over and over. The term, if I be lifted up, is speaking of his cross. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man also be Lift it up. You know what an altar does? It lifts up the sacrifice. It elevates it to a point where you can see. Four and a half feet is right where you can see exactly what's going on. You can come stand at the gate without walking in and see that's a dead animal there. That's what that is. And so the materials, the measurement speaks of God's equity. The elevation speaks of the sacrifice of Christ. The mightiness. This altar is made a little different than some of the others. Now, a number of the altars would have horns, but... This one had large horns on each corner in the Bible and throughout the Bible, a horn. And even today, a horn is a picture of what? Strength. I was reading the book of Daniel this week and that he-goat pushes with his horn, does he not? It's a picture of strength. You know what that altar is saying? Sin is stronger than you. Sin is stronger than you. You say this morning, say, I'm a pretty strong-willed person. That's because of sin. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. The only time it's good to have a strong will is in submission to God. Otherwise, it's called stubbornness. And stubbornness is idolatry and wickedness in the sight of God. The horns speak of the strength of sin. If you would, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, let me just read a verse that confirms the message of the horns of this altar. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, I've heard men say, I'm free to fill in the drain. I'm free to commit fornication. I'm free to commit adultery. I'm free to look at what I want. I'm free to uh, drink. I'm free to this. I'm free to that. My question is, are you free to... Stop. You know what sin is? It's binding. You know what the law of sin and death is? It is a law. By the way, for a law to be a law, it has to be equally applied to everyone. Equally applied to all. Male, female, Jew, Greek, doesn't matter. Romans 7 deals with the law of sin and death. What the law of sin and death is? No matter how strongly I purpose to do right, I cannot in my natural self. No No matter how strongly I purpose to stop doing what I know is wrong, I don't have the power to do it. Meaning sin is stronger than our natural ability to oppose it. It's just like the law of gravity. I say, you know what? I, I believe. I believe. You say, what do you believe, Pastor? I believe in myself. You go, oh, no. This is problematic. 
Oh, but I do. And I believe through the power of, of mental purpose, I can elevate myself off of this platform and stay elevated six inches above the platform. Now, I believe that. Actually, I don't. But if I did, I can believe it all I want. But the law of gravity is stronger than my belief. Do you know what? I, I've purposed. I'm going to, I'm going to turn my life around. I hear that term from people whose lives need to turn around. I'm going to get her done. I need to turn my life around. What they're not telling you is this is the 32nd time I've purposed to turn my life around. And I mean it every time. We get the idea there are people who are perpetually sinning and the reason they're not stopping is because they don't really want to. If anything, my ministry in the jail has taught me, I've met many times and they're sincerely sick of the way their life is going. But they're not willing to submit to God's way to get it changed. They'll say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to turn my life around. And I'm such a great psychologist, I go in there and say, not on your life, you can't. Your confidence in yourself and believe in yourself, and I'll turn my life around. I don't come in here to preach a gospel to you that says, you work at it, turn your life around. No, you cannot. The law of sin says you can't. Sin is stronger than you. And those horns on that altar are saying, this, the horns of sin will push you over. Sin is stronger than man. Thank you, Adam. He introduced sin, but that's where we are, friends. Under the law of sin and death, like gravity holds your feet on the ground, sin binds you, and sin makes you do what you don't want to do and keeps you from doing what you know you ought to do. Many an innocent little child is purposed in their heart, oh, I feel so awful when I lie to my mom and dad. I feel so terrible when I took that thing they told me not to. I'm never going to do that again. And five minutes later they have the opportunity and cannot tell themselves no. This is the strength of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the Bible says this, speaking of the resurrection, which is a wonderful passage, I encourage you to read it, 1 Corinthians 15, but verse 56 says the sting of death. So the lethal dose is sin. What is it that brings death? Sin. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin. What does he say? The strength of sin is the law. You know what God did in the law? He told us to do things he knew we couldn't perform. He said, thou shalt make no other God, have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And while he was writing that with his finger in stone, they were doing it. Literally. Why did God do that? He gave them a law that he knew they would break. Why? To convince them they were lawbreakers. You know how it works. Judgments are prepared for... Scorners, those who say, I'm good, I, I don't need anybody telling me what to do, I know how. So then a parent says, okay, you're such a good child, then do X, Y, and Z by this time. You can say I'm being ornery, but I try to follow God's example. There are times I know a child's heart and attitude is not right, and I intentionally give them rules I know they will break before the day is over so that I can prove to them your heart's not right. And here's how I can prove it. I gave you three very simple instructions that you and I both know you could have performed. And I knew you wouldn't when I told you. But if I didn't give you those, you would never believe that your heart isn't right. I sensed your attitude. I knew it. But I gave you rules so you would know it. I need you to... You know what? Why did Nathan tell David a story about a sheep and a guy killing it and eating it? Because if he'd walked in and said, David, you've done something wicked, David would say, not really. I mean, she was out there. I couldn't help it. Right? But instead, he made David look at the horror his sin and when David saw it in somebody else he could say I have sinned 
it's a blessed day when you and I can get the message of the ark that is, I mean, the altar that's here, a burnt sacrifice, the brazen altar that says sin is more powerful than your natural ability to conquer. Who can say, Proverbs says, who can say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. Here's what we're going to do this morning. If you can say that, please stand. I, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. I've done it. In my heart, there's no malice, and there hasn't been. I have effectively purged myself of all evil. Please, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> no. Now, you can say your heart is clean, but you won't be able to say you did it. You have to say Christ did it. The pattern of the altar says this, number one, uh, the curse of sin has come, and there must be judgment on sin. The measurement tells us of God's equity and the elevation speaks of the sacrifice of Christ. The mightiness, we see those horns represent the power of sin. But then there's mobility. He said, put rings on the side, also made of brass, and two poles so that every place you go, you move that along. What's that tell us? Meaning it was not the full answer for sin, that altar, was it? Because they had to constantly be putting sacrifices no matter where they pitched their tent, no matter where they were, guess what was there? Now, here's the wonderful thing. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. There's, you know what? There was two staves on this altar. And you can, we won't run this too far unless we go too far with the typology. But there were two staves. You know what that allowed them to do? It allowed them to balance the, that, that altar. I can't help but believe that the two staves can help us. Whether it's the, the intent or if we can just draw the application can help us understand there is law that convinces us of the horror of sin. But you know what? There's also grace in this picture. The brass and the blood and the fire and the smoke all speaks of God's holiness, God's wrath, His judgment on sin. But you know what you never found on that altar? A human being. You always found a substitute for the humans. You never found a priest laying himself on that altar because he was a sinner. He had to have a substitute. And so then the mobility of this tells us no matter where they went, there wasn't a point where they reached perfection under the law. That's what Hebrews says. The sacrifices could not make the comers there too perfect. So it spoke of something better. It was a a type and a picture. So we've seen the pattern. Number two, in the pattern we speak of the materials, the measurement, the mightiness in the horns, the manner it was prepared to consume. That's what it was made to do. It had Everything was built to catch ashes, so it's going to be burning and consuming. But then the place of the altar, which we've already... I'm I'm going to elaborate this so we can get to our final point and conclude. The place of the altar, as we've already said, it was primary. It's the first thing you come to before you can approach God. And I'll say it again. If you have bypassed your offensiveness to God by not focusing on the fact that Christ died for you. We know, I've shared this with you before. There's a young lady that came here and tried to deal with her about her need for salvation. I would say to her name and say, now she was like fourth grade. Now, do you understand that Jesus died for you? And I kid you not, there was those obviously with me that could testify this. You'd say, I know he died for everybody. That's not what I'm asking. He did die for everybody. But did he die for you? Well, he died for everybody. And she would never say, yes, he died for me. You know what that insinuates? If he died for me, then that's how horrible I am. It doesn't, I I use this in the jail, and I've used this here before. If I told you, folks, Today's the last day I'm going to be able to preach to you because I'm going to serve a term in prison. You're like, ah, what happened? 
well, you know, I was really hungry the other day at the store. And down here at Grocery Outlet right now, they have this really good deal. And these protein packs are 50 cents a piece. And I was so hungry, I decided I would go ahead and eat it before I paid for it. And I ate two of them. So a dollar's worth of protein packs. And after tax, it was a dollar six. And so I took a dollar six and didn't, I forgot, I really forgot. And I put those things in my pocket and they walked out and they got me for shoplifting. Like, and you're going to prison for that? Oh, yeah, 25 years. You're like, you're not telling us something. What's up? You, know, you watch some people, and man, I mean, they are they are going through the religious routine because somewhere inside they got a conscience that works and says, everything I'm doing is not enough to assuage the guilt for what I've done wrong. And then when you try to confront them, you know the only thing that can properly compensate for your sin is what Jesus did on the cross. And he died. Paul said, uh, Paul, the religious Paul, Saul, not, not a... Not a drug addict, not a drunkard, not a whoremonger, not a fornicator, not a man filled with scripture but filled with self. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Meaning, I see that I should have taken what he had on the cross. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. How? Because Christ was his substitute. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for everybody. Gave himself for me. You know what happened on the Damascus Road? Paul realized his offenses were personally against Jesus Christ. That the suffering that Jesus went through should have been his. He was deserving of the wrath of Almighty God. He was deserving of nails in his hands and in his feet and thorns of, on his head and spit in his face and a beating on his back. Have you ever seen that's what you deserve from God and man? Because that's the record of Scripture. And when you walk in the brazen altar, God is working to reconcile man to himself. But the first thing God deals with are the things that we've done to offend him. How many have ever done this? Someone's actually done you wrong. And inside, you are angry at them. And they come, and they know you're angry at them, and they know why you're angry at them. But both of you pretend that there's no wrong. We've all done this. The person walks up, and you think, well... I don't want to be a jerk and start a fight, but you did do wrong to me, you know. And you think, you know what? Let's just have peace and pretend it never happened. I've probably done things like that too. By the way, we can think that way, I suppose. The guy walks up and he acts like he's never done anything and you act like you've never done anything and he's never done anything to you and you have a facade of a relationship and there's anger inside of you and guilt inside of him and anger in return. That's not reconciliation, is it? No way. We have actually disobeyed, disregarded, and disdained God. And God says, you have to face that before we can have fellowship. There would be fellowship inside that tent. There's bread. There's a place that represents prayer. The light of God's word. Many people say, I want the washing and the light and the bread of God's word. Not until you see the brazen altar. Not until we and I realize my sinfulness put that bullock on that altar. My sin is horrid in the sight of God. And so... The place of the altar, it's primary. First thing you see, it's preventative. You can't move on until you've addressed the altar, until there is a sacrifice accepted there. It's portrayal, brass, and blood, and death, and fire, and smoke. We've dealt with all that. Thirdly, the purpose of the altar. Then what's the purpose that's been embedded in this entire message? Number one, we must have the altars there that they might acknowledge the presence of sin. God did not create a tabernacle that was a gate wide open, and you just walk right into the Holy of Holies. No. 
let me try to explain it this way. People say, why would God be like that? It's who he is. He's holy. How many of us would like to take a trip, if Elon Musk can facilitate, to the sun instead of the moon? What do you think? Jeff, should we do it? Help me. Why not? I like living. You start moving too close to the sun, you tell me what's going to happen. It, it will be a consuming fire. You know what Jesus is called? He's called the S-U-N of righteousness. Now, I enjoy, how many of you are enjoying the sun being out today? We are all recipients of the grace of God through that sun in the cloud, uh, hanging up there in the sky. It gives light and it gives life. But if you approach it improperly, it will destroy you. You know what? If you don't approach it properly, where we're at, you can get some sunburn and give you cancer. The very life-giving source can also kill you if you don't approach it properly. So here's what let's do. Let's just block it out. You know what the atheist does? I'll pretend there's not a sun. And he goes and lives in the dark shadows and the recesses of his own mind. The agnostic says, well, I think it's a sun, but I'm not sure what kind of power it has. The wise person said, I know what that sun is and I know what it can do, so I will respect it properly and approach it the way I should. You know, God says, you walk into my very presence. Hebrews 12 says, our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, we're to serve him with reverence, reverence and fear. And so then, there must be the acknowledgement of the presence of sin, an appreciation that the brazen altar did. It gave an appreciation for the price and the penalty of sin. And you look at that altar, and sin was not atoned for by laying a loaf of bread there. No, an innocent animal had to die in the place of the guilty sinner. All a picture of Jesus Christ. Before the high priest would offer that bullock, he would lay his hands on the head of the bullock. You can read this in Leviticus. And confess the sins of the people. Symbolically transferring all the sins onto that bullock. And then the bullock would die as a picture of how offensive and how wrong our sin is. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is a better life. So false religion says. The consequence for your sin is you have to try harder. So the wages of sin is death. But, aren't you glad the word but is in that verse? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what sin has only ever done? You killed something inside of you. It kills your conscience. It kills human relationship. It kills your peace. It kills your joy. Sin kills the soul of man. And death does not go in heaven. Death is cast into hell in the lake of fire. No death in heaven. And those who are dead in trespasses and sins are not going to heaven. They're going to hell. But you and I don't have to go there. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Can you imagine walking up and somebody saying, boy, I, one of the Levites who's been set apart for the service of God, he's a priest, and he says, man, I cannot wait to get near the presence of God. I'm not a high priest, but I can get in there next to that mercy seat, and I'm so anxious to take part in the showbread and anxious for the golden candlestick and the light and the, the incense. I wonder what that altar of incense, it must smell beautiful. There's, no, there's nothing like that incense on earth. God won't let it be duplicated. I wonder what it's like in the holy place. I can't wait to get in there. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to go in there and wash with that laver and head right on in. And Aaron says, you're forgetting something. Before the laver, there's this big altar. And the guy says, I don't like the sight of blood. I, I don't like the fact that God is insinuating that we're so bad that it takes the death of our prized animals to atone for our sins. I'm not that bad. Well, then you never approach God. We must reckon with the presence of sin, the penalty and the price for sin. James 1.12 says, 
Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Uh, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We must realize the consequence for sin is death. It's the ultimate. And finally, the altar was there not only for the acknowledgement of the presence of sin, the appreciation of the penalty and price for sin, but the acceptance of God's provision for our sin. You know what? A person that truly understood the righteousness and holiness of God would approach that altar and say, while I am grieved to my core at the picture of death and shed blood, I am so grateful because it should be me on that altar. May I ask you something? Who was the first high priest to minister at the brazen altar? Someone who knew something about crafting things with horns. Hmm? Don't you think as Aaron approached that altar, his memory went to, when he saw the horns on that altar, a calf? He had led God's people to take their clothes off and commit immorality and commit idolatry. Why does he get to be the priest? Same reason you and I get to. Shouldn't Aaron have been flayed and put on that altar for what he did? Come on, folk. Did he not do great damage to God's people? Did he not misrepresent God? Shouldn't he have been laid on that altar and consumed with fire? but he wasn't because he accepted the substitute in his place. You and I ought to have been pinned on the cross. We should have been. But praise God for a substitute. Aren't you glad that he was wounded for our transgressions? Aren't you glad that he was bruised for our iniquities? You hear me well this morning. I love serving God. There's one reason why. Because I know how much he loved me. He took... I'm convinced to the depth of my soul that I get to stand here before you today and talk about Christ because God spared my wretched soul and Jesus took my place. I ought to be burning in hell today. I'm convinced you say, you're a pastor, son. I have nothing to do with it. God, through his word, has painted a very clear picture of where I ought to be and what I ought to receive. And you know what? People hurt one another, but my Savior has done nothing for me but die in my place and intercede on my behalf. I know how happy I am today that I get to serve him instead of having to burn in the flames of hell. Christ died for us. When? While we were yet sinners. My question for you this morning is, what are you doing with the cross of Jesus Christ? The cross tells us the same thing. There's sin presence or he would not have had to die. If we could be saved without the cross, then there's no need for him to have come and died. Not only does the cross tell us of the presence of sin, it tells us of the power and penalty of sin. The only way for our sin to be dealt with is not through what we do for God, but what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. The cross gives us one more message. The only way for God to deal with your sin is for you to accept the provision he's made. But as many as received him, Jesus Christ, John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that... Believe on His name.